Let's open up to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis 28. Did you guys do your homework? Nobody? Okay. You did? Good. Good. A couple of you did? Awesome. Genesis 28. And everything is just going hunky-dory for old Jacob, isn't it? He's got everything. He's got a, a full ride to Auburn and all. No, he doesn't. It is like his family is disintegrating around him, isn't it? His brother wants to kill him. His, uh, his mother has told him, you need to run for your life. You need to leave everything that you know. Drop it and run because you will die. He will kill you. He is Esau, the fully formed one, is full of hatred for you. And then she says, Rivka says to Yaakov, Jacob, she says, um, you need to get up and escape to my uncle Lavan because your brother will kill you and he, you know, he's going to hunt you down. But then she says, um, your brother's anger will turn away from you and he will forget, which didn't happen. But then I'll send and bring you back from there, which didn't happen as well. And she said, why should I lose both of you in the same day? And we read last week about how a father's disobedience created a whole lot of mess and dysfunction for a yet another generation, didn't it? Just a simple act of, well, let me maybe disregard the fact that I'm supposed to give Jacob the blessing and instead give it to the son I kind of favor a little bit more, the one I think deserves it, and give it to Esau. And here we go, and the cycle kind of just continues, doesn't it? So it brings us to chapter 28. Marvin, would you do me a favor and bring that board really close up here? Let's read a little bit, and I'm going to comment as we go. And I always say the way this works is if you have a question, just raise your hand, and I'll be happy to entertain that question as long as it's you know, pertaining to what we're reading today. So Yitzchak, or Isaac, he called Jacob, and after blessing him, charged him. He said, you are not to choose a wife from the Hittite women. Go now to the home of Bethuel, your mother's father, and choose a wife from there, from the daughters of Lavan, your mother's brother. And he says, May El Shaddai, what do your translations have if it's not Hebrew? God Almighty. May he bless you and make you fruitful and increase your descendants until they become a whole kahal. That's the word like assembly. It's a called out group of people. And may he give you the blessing which he gave Avraham you and your descendants with you so that you will possess the land which you will travel through the land god gave to avraham and of course we know about this land from the you know the 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 chapters that pertain to avraham's life but it's interesting because we're going to see one of the first few occurrences of this name of god el shaddai and we see all three major names of god being used in this chapter alone and the first of these is El Shaddai. And I have it written up here. Sheen, for my Hebrew reader, Sheen Dalit Yud, Shaddai. Shaddai is only going to be used, I think, less than 50 times in, in the entire Hebrew Bible. And so if you put a L in front of it, and then Shaddai, you have El Shaddai. 
So El is short for God, or the exalted one. Shaddai, right here, it has a, it's kind of a conjugation of the words Asher and Dai. We sing the Dayenu. Remember after Passover, we say Dayenu, which means it's enough. It's sufficient. So Asher is to be, Dai is sufficient. So we have a conjugated word here. So El Shaddai is the God that is my sufficient one. The one that we could say provides all of my needs. Which makes sense because the word Sadeh is what Esau smelled like. Do you guys remember what that was? The field. The field. He was a man of the field. And he was a hunter as well. So Sadeh is a field. And there's lots of fields around here. Lots of different things grow around here, don't they? Peanuts and cotton, barley and soybean. Sometimes um, oats grow around here. Corn. The field provides all of those needs. But this word Sadeh or Shaddai is also connected. It shares the same three-letter roots with breasts. <laughs> Everyone looked up what? Yeah. Shaddaiim is breasts. Which, if you look at that, God is saying, I am your all-provider in every stage of your life. Whether you're just an infant and all you have is milk and it provides everything you need. Or if it's the field and you're out tilling the field and all the potential that you can get from a field. I am El Shaddai. I am your all-provider. So the, the name God Almighty is not really uh, the best translation of El Shaddai. So El Shaddai um, also is, is, is an acrostic, we could say. So Shaddai, if we write it out, Shin Dalit Yud, we could say he is the Shomer Dalatot Yisrael, which is the guardian of the Dalatot, the doors of Israel, Yisrael. He is the guardian of the doors of Israel, which is why, if you, how many guys know what a mezuzah is? Mezuzah. Mezuzah is the little thing that we put on our doorpost of our houses. And more often than not, the letter that is present, the Hebrew letter that is present on that mezuzah is the letter Shin. Shin, which is to remind us that he is the Shomer Dalatot Yisrael. He is the guardian of the doors of the people of Israel. And that's how that kind of made it onto the mezuzot, the mezuzahs, because we have put that on our doors. He is the El Shaddai. So this is used, I think it's 48 times in the Hebrew Bible, we're going to see God referred to as Shaddai. Okay? Let's keep going here, and we're going to hit all these names and explain them a little bit more. He says, um, may he give you the blessing. We read this, verse 5 now. Look with me at verse 5. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Lavan, the son of Bethuel, the Arami, the brother of Rivka, Yaakov's, and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Yitzhak had blessed Yaakov, and he sent him away to Padan Aram to choose a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he charged him, you are not to choose from the Canaanite women as your wife. And that Yaakov had listened to his father and mother and gone to Badan Aram. So Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father. So he didn't take any more wives. No, what does it say? Esau went to Yishmael and took in additional, addition to the wives he already had. Machalat, the daughter of Yishmael, Avraham's son, the sister of Nabayot, to be his wife. And we know through genealogical records that these people and the descendants of these people, Esau, 
are going to be a thorn in the side of Israel, are they not? Let's keep going. And now we're getting into actually a Torah portion, a different Torah portion, even though it's the same chapter, Torah portion, Vayetzeh. And up here in this picture, it's still up there, is a 22-year-old, almost 20 years ago, which is crazy even to say, young lieutenants in the U.S. Army by the name of Gabriel Rutledge. <laughs> I know, I know, I have an age a day, right? So I had the wonderful fortune of going to a school for the Army at Fort Sill. This was my second time to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, which is a lovely, lovely place, especially in, in July and August. And one of the things I had to do for this school was uh, start at about nine o'clock at night and do an overnight land navigation course through the Wichita Mountains of Oklahoma, which you think Oklahoma is all flat. There are some mountains there. They're, they're very rocky and tundrous looking mountains. It was overnight and there, there wasn't any moonlight or anything like that. It was very, very dark. Um, one of those nights where you can barely see right in front of you we, the only illumination we were allowed to have was a headlamp set on a red light. So it didn't dilate our pupils, but also they wanted us to be, it wanted to be sort of a tactical environment or whatever. We had to do this land navigation course alone. And for those who don't know what a land navigation course is, you have a compass, an old school compass, which is magnetic, and you have a map. And then you have a list on a piece of paper of coordinates, usually like eight digit coordinates, and it's like 10 or 12 different points on the map that you have to plot on your map using a compass and a projector and a pencil. And then you have to go out and find each of these points on your map and you have to route yourself in a very efficient way. And you have to write down or sometimes there's a little code that you get and you write it down as an answer on your sheets on your piece of paper. And by sunup, you have to have found all of the points. You have to have made it all the way around. So you're walking all night through this rocky terrain and you're alone and all you have is a very dim light and you have a map, you have a compass, you have some basic navigation tools and you have to trust your training in that sense. And here's the interesting is we weren't allowed to talk to anyone through the entire course. If they caught you talking, you had to repeat the course the night following. You had to start it all over again, which meant no sleep, right? So it was interesting because you would come across groups little pods of uh, lieutenants. These are all, all lieutenants and stuff that were in this course. And you would come across them, a couple, two or three of them, and they would be like, hey man, hey, hey, did you find this point or whatever? We're, we can't find this thing, right? And you just had to be like, mm, 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 and just keep walking, just ignore them, I can't talk to you. And then the cadre, the instructors of this course, would be out, they would be out walking the course, and it'd be super dark, and they would have a little headlamp, and they'd be walking around, and you, know, you couldn't really see who's who. And they would walk up to you and be like, hey, buddy, can you help me for just a second? I, I'm having trouble. I, I'm turned around here. And they would try to tempt you into talking to them and see if you would fall for it. And then if you did, they would yank you out of that class and then make you do it again the, the, night, the night following. But man, like walking through, I remember so many times almost rolling my ankles on these things and, and trying to climb up these boulders. And it was so frustrating. I felt so alone. And you kind of have this tunnel vision of this little red light shining right in front of you. That's all you can see, and it's so dim. And you have to be so trusting of this map and this compass and the plots that you, the, the, the points that you plotted on this map, and just go for it. 
Well, I, I completed I completed the course, completed the um, the land navigation thing on time. I actually love doing land navigation. But this is the morning after here, and someone snapped a photo of me. And I'm, you can't really see it, but I am dead tired, just exhausted. And uh, they put these reflective belts on us so they could find us if we got super lost. But I'm just dead tired, and I, I was in kind of this confused era era of my life, and that night especially. But little did I know that just in the course of a couple more months after this photo was taken, I would receive an injection for a vaccine that would turn me into a full-blown epileptic. And my time in the army would be quickly over and snuffed out. And I entered an even bigger time of confusion and identity crisis in myself. Because the army said, well, you can't, you're having seizures every time you do, you know, when you run or whatever, like, we can't, sorry, you're not, you're not capable of being a soldier. And man, it like broke my heart because my identity was wrapped up in that. And I entered this time of confusion and, and isolation and trying to reinvent who I am and figure out what is Gabe Rutledge, right? And it reminds me when I read this story this week in Genesis 28, Yaakov is facing a similar time. Let's, let's read about it here. It says in verse 10, Yaakov went out from Beersheba and he traveled toward Haran. Now we think, okay, that's maybe just a couple day hike, right? First of all, one observation, Yaakov is broke. He's leaving, however, a very wealthy household, probably net worth of, in modern terms, billions of dollars. And he's leaving empty handed and he's almost like a refugee. He is a refugee. He's seeking asylum or something. He's on the run. So what happened to all the wealth? What's going to happen to all the wealth? But it's gone. He doesn't have it. Even though he's received the birthright and the blessing, it's gone. And it says that he traveled toward Haran. And, and we read it in black and white in print. We think, oh, maybe that's just a half a day's journey or whatever. You know, like the other day, um, Eli and I hiked uh, nine miles through the mountains. And it was an exhausting day. We had lots of ups and downs and stuff. And that was, a good, that was a good run, right? That was a good, good hike. From, from where he's starting out, from Beersheba to Haran, is going to end up being 450 some odd miles that he's going to have to walk. Empty-handed. And I mean, in this day and age, it's like the wild west of the ancient Near East. If you're traveling alone, you are susceptible to so much violence and thievery. And What's interesting, though, about this some people speculate, and they use the chronology of the Bible to do this, and the, especially the age of Joseph, it may take him upwards of 14 years to complete it. So he didn't just go straight from point A to point B. He settled down in places, and he kind of meandered his way up to Haran, back to his mom's home country and family. It takes him 14 years, some might speculate, to get there. And it reminds me of this time in my life. Remember when I said I was confused and my identity was kind of shook up a little bit. And sometimes we are in this state of like being a refugee or we've been outcast or we have a child that's in the state of a spiritual refugee or whatever, asylum. And we think, oh, okay, maybe it's just gonna be a couple of weeks or sometimes it's a long journey, is it not? And some of you, maybe you were raised in Christianity you went, you were very devout and you, your parents took you to church whenever the doors were open or whatever. 
And then you went in this long, long detour with your life and lived in the world and did worldly things and eventually, finally circled back around and you got back into where you know God has called you to be. But let's keep going here. Verse 11, it says, He came to a certain makom. What did I tell you guys makom is code word for? The temple mounts. Hamakom. It says he came to a certain Makom and he stayed the night there because the sun had set. He took a stone from the Makom, the place, and he put it under his head and he lay down there to sleep. There's a lot going on here. It's like he's so poor that he has to use a pillow. He doesn't get his. um, Who's the guy that sells pillows that Donald Trump promotes? My pillow. Yeah. He didn't have he didn't even have enough money to buy a three dollar Walmart pillow, right? He's using a rock from the Makom, from the place. Now the sages of Israel will say that this rock was later used as the cornerstone of the temple itself. I don't know, but you know the Scottish actually had the stone. <laughs> I don't know if they did or not. But did you know? Remember, uh, King King uh, King Henry was just coronated king, right? King Charles. Thank you. King Charles was just uh, coronated as king. Did you know that every king of England coronated since 1066, I think it is, has been coronated on a special oak throne and it was constructed specifically to house what they believed to be the stone of Jacob? Yeah, so even just like last week or whenever it was that King Charles was coronated, if you look at some of the footage and some of the things, they actually brought that stone from from Scotland and they brought it down in this fancy little container and this like velvet thing all the way around it and 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 they put it under that special throne the coronation throne and he sat there so it's interesting because the coronation of British kings is actually by them seen as a religious ceremony they see themselves as a as a theocratic monarchy and they they believe that they are the continuation of the kingdom of and the lineage of David. So it's really fascinating, but they, they, they see that as, as a pivotal thing, as, as giving their kings legitimacy, sitting on that stone that Jacob put his head on. And a way of saying, like, we're the way to God. We're the stone upon which Jacob laid his head and had a dream about this ladder. And now we coordinate our kings on that. Now, I don't think they have this stone. And actually, some geologists actually identified that that stone actually probably came from a quarry in northern Scotland. But it gives me context, at least as a history nerd, when, when our founders of the United States of America broke off from, from, from the British Empire, that was a, big th- it was a big step of courage for them because they're saying we're leaving this, um, this group of people and this monarchy that believes itself to be the continuation of this, of this theocratic monarch that dates back to biblical times that coordinate their kings on the stone of Jacob. We're leaving that and we're kind of forging our own path now. But... I don't know where the stone is, but it's interesting to kind of speculate, I guess. And it says in verse 12 that he had a chalam. A chalam is a dream. That there before him was a sulam, which is like a staircase or it's a ladder. And it was resting on the ground with its top top reaching all the way to the shemaim, to the heavens. And the angels, the melakim of yud heh vav were going up and down on it. Let me pause here and say that 
whenever someone like one of our patriarchs goes into a sleep, that can sometimes be looked at as a prophetic picture of death or a prophetic picture of a spiritual sleep and slumber, a spiritual blindness. You see where I'm going with this? So he's going down, he's laying his head down, but then he's going to encounter something. And it says here, we're using a second name that's up here on my board. And I said it there, your translations, where it says that angels, the Melakim le Adonai, your translations probably have L-O-R-D in all capital letters. How many of you have that? L-O-R-D. Okay, how many of you have like maybe a complete Jewish Bible or something? And it says like Adonai or Hashem or something like that. Yeah. So the, the name of God that's being used there is Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, And we call this the Tetragrammaton. This is the most frequently used name for God in the Hebrew Bible. And it's used approximately 7,000 times. 7,000 times. Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. This name was pronounced every year, multiple times every year on Yom Kippur at the Holy Temple uh, as the priest would come out and he would utter the, uh, the Birkat HaKohanim, the priestly blessing. He would say the name. Now, there's about uh, 13 to 14 different pronunciations of this name that I personally counted. I used to really, really geek out over the name and how to pronounce it. And there's just so much disagreement as to how we are to pronounce the name. Um, I default to how Yeshua pronounced the name, which is Abba, which is Father. <laughs> now, we have a policy here at our congregation. If you pronounce the name, more power to you. Just, uh, just don't try to convince the other person that pronounces it differently or doesn't pronounce it at all that they're wrong or displeasing God somehow, because they're not. Pronouncing the name is so much more than syllables that exit your mouth. It's about character, and it's about, it's about living the... the representing the God of the Bible in an accurate way. That's pronouncing the name more than just syllables that exit your mouth. But yud Vavhe vav is the most frequent, that is the, that is the personal name of God. And um, in, in the Orthodox Jewish world, uh, these names and these titles have a ranking in their level of holiness. So for instance, Hashem, which is Hebrew for the name, is the least holy of the titles. Hashem just means the name. And you can use that in, in, in conversation, okay? The next holiest would be this one here, which is Elohim. Many of you have heard Elohim. Uh, Elohim. And this isn't God's personal name. It's, it means, it means some, someone who is exalted. Elohim. Yeah, it just means the exalted one. There's actually many Elohim in the Bible, but we, it, the context lends itself to know whenever we say Elohim, it's probably talking about the yud heh the, the creator. But uh, even in Orthodox Jewish world, you say Hashem, 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 you can say that all day long. Elohim, however, is a little bit holier. And you might even purposefully mispronounce this title and say Elohim. Elohim, because they don't want to profane the name of God and kind of making it a very common thing. So they would say Elohim. Now this one is something that Jews today do not pronounce at all. Well, at least in normative, like Orthodox Judaism, they would not pronounce it. 
And it is oftentimes replaced only in prayer or when reading from the Torah scroll. It's replaced with the, the circumlocution Adonai, which uh, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, you know that it's replaced with Adonai as well. So that, I just want to give you kind of a, 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 I don't know, a quick class on the names of God. But God's name was not God. God's name is not Lord. But context lends itself to know when I'm say when I am up here saying the word God, you know that I'm talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But let's keep going. So these angels were going up and down upon this, and then suddenly Adonai Hashem Yudhei Vave was standing there above him, and he said, "I am Adonai." There it is, the Yudhei Vavhe. The Elohim of Avraham, your grandfather, and the Elohim of Yitzchak. The land in which I am lying, uh, which you are lying, I will give to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the grains of the dust on the earth. And you will parats. You will like break forth or burst forth. Let me pause there and let's go back to this ladder. This ladder is so important. Um, if you go with me to, uh, let me see where I want to take you first. I think it's Proverbs. We're, we're going to talk quickly about this ladder because it's interesting that he is in a time of desperation and loneliness. But God is choosing this time to reveal to himself, reveal to Jacob, so much about his plan of redemption. Proverbs 30, verse 4. Proverbs 30, verse 4. Who has gone up to heaven and can come down? Who has cupped the wind in the palms of his hands? Who has wrapped up the waters in his cloak? And who established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. So who is this ascending and descending? Who is the latter? Now we as believers in Yeshua, we say, oh, that's, that's Yeshua, right? Or that's a, maybe it's a prophetic picture of Yeshua. And I'm not saying you're wrong, but, but where do we get that from? Go with me to, to John chapter 1 now. John chapter 1. John 1. And look at verse 51. John 1, 51. Now, let's back up to verse 49. Nathanael said, John 1, 49. Nathanael said, Rabbi, you are the son. Remember the son in Proverbs 30, verse 4? You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Yeshua answered him, You believe all this just because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than that. And then he said to him, Yes, indeed, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on what? The Son of Man. So, who is Yeshua claiming to be or what is Yeshua claiming to be in this dream? He's claiming to be the Sulam, the ladder. He is the access point to heaven. The access point to the Father is what he's saying there. Now, this would not have been lost on all of these listeners at that time. But he's saying, I am the ladder. Now, I don't think, guys, 
that there is a literal ladder somewhere in the world that's set up that you can find and you can climb it or whatever. But what's happening here is he's come to the makom, the place, the navel of the earth, whereupon will sit the holy temple. And he just so happened to grab one of the stones, use it as a pillow, had a dream. And in that dream, he was shown the spiritual world of this is a spot where it is a portal to God's holiness, so to speak. There will one day sit the house of the Lord on this very spot. And then Yeshua much later is saying, oh, and guess what? I am that ladder. That's a big claim, isn't it? And it says here, God says to Jacob, your descendants will be as numerous as the grains of the dust in the earth. And you will parats, you will break forth. This is the word used for like a flash flood sometimes in the desert. And he's saying your descendants will break forth to the west or in Hebrew, it's actually yam, sea, to the sea. The, 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 word, the word for west in Hebrew is actually yam, sea. Why is that? <laughs> if I go back to my map here, where is it at? If I go back to my map here, what's to the west? The sea, yam. Okay, he says you will break forth to the west. Now, I don't think the sea is the, the limitation of that, but rather in that general direction. And to the east. Now, the east in Hebrew is kedma or sometimes Kedem, which is like the ancient time. Or it could be the place where the sun rises. And you got to think because when the sun rises, that's in the past in terms of time. That's in now in the past. That's the direction of the past. And the sun is moving across to the west. So that's why they kind of have that same thing. So he's saying you will, you will spread out to the, the west, to the Kedma, the east, and to the Safon. Safon is the north. Safon in Hebrew, though, it means a place that is like hidden. A place that is like, um, it's actually, actually could also mean like a place of treasure. And to the Negev, or in Hebrew, or in English, I'm sorry, to the south. Now the Hebrew word, the biblical Hebrew word for south is Negev. Why is that? Because if you go south of where they're, where they're at, right here in Beit El, is a Negev. Negev is a place of desert, a parched land. So literally, these directions in Hebrew are geographical places, yes, but they're also speaking, and I think God is speaking broader than that and saying, not only will you spread out in this land that I promised Avraham, but you will spread out to the ends of the earth. Look with me at Deuteronomy 28 real quick. Deuteronomy 28. And go to verse 64. So we're way down the line in the Torah here, aren't we? Deuteronomy 28, 64. Adonai will scatter you among all the peoples, one end of the earth to the other, and there you will serve other gods made of wood and stone, which neither you nor your ancestors have known. Among these nations, among the Gentiles, you will not find rest or repose. And there will be no rest for the sole of your foot. Rather, the Lord will give you their anguish of heart, dimness of eyes. Remember we talked about eyes a couple weeks ago? And apathy of spirits. Your life will hang in doubt before you. And you will be afraid day and night. 
and have no assurance that you will stay alive. In the morning you will say, oh, how I wish it were evening. And in the evening you will say, how I wish it were morning. Because the fear overwhelming your heart and the sights of your eyes. Finally, Adonai will bring you back in ships to Egypt, the place of which I have a uh, place of which I said to you, you will never see it again. And there you will try to sell yourselves as slaves to your enemies, but no one will buy you. So God is echoing this here and saying, you will be scattered to the four corners of the earth. But how many of you know that's not the end of the story, right? Go with me to Ezekiel 39 now. Ezekiel 39. In verse 21, Ezekiel 39, 21. Thus, I will display my glory among the nations. Remember, he just scattered them to the nations so that all the nations will see my judgment when I execute it and my hands when I lay it on them. From that day on, the house of Israel will know that I am yud heh their Elohim. While the the Gentiles will know that the house of Israel went into exile because of their, their guilt, because they broke faith with me, so that I hid my face from them and handed them over to their adversaries. And they fell by the sword, all of them. Yes, I treated them, I treated their uncleanness and crimes deserved, and I hid my face from them. And he says, here it is, verse 25. Therefore, Adonai Elohim says this, I will restore the fortunes of Jacob. Remember, we talked about what happened to the fortune. I will restore that and I will have compassion on the entire house of Israel and I will be, they will be jealous for my holy name. They will bear their shame and all their guilt breaking faith with me. And once they are living securely in land, no one will make them afraid. This will be after I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' lands, thereby being consecrated through them in the sight of many nations. They will know that I am the Lord their God since it was I who caused them to go into exile among the nations. And it was I who gathered them back into their own land. And I will leave none of them there anymore. Wow. So go back to this dream Jacob's having. And the words God speaking after this dream, he's saying, your descendants will burst forth to the east, to the west, to the north, to the south. And they will go to all the ends of the earth. We can understand it now as we read the prophets. And they, they will inhabit the earth. Because of their disobedience, they will be scattered. Let's keep going here in Genesis. By you and your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, how is that the case? Because when, when the people of Israel are exiled into all the nations, it's like he's scattering seeds. And then he will raise his ensign and his Holy Spirit will move amongst his people and make them remember the covenant of their fathers and make them long to be back in their land and with their God and they will bring some of the nations with them. And uh, I was just talking to Maria, right? About uh, going, she went to Israel a couple weeks back and I said, that's a fulfillment of prophecy that she grew up in Peru and now lives in Daleville, but she studied growing up the, the, the Bible and, and about the God of Israel. And at some point in her life here recently, her heart was so stirred that she's like, I need to go to the land. Because this, these scriptures made it all the way around the globe. 
She says, I need to go to the land now. And in the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 2, she is now being blessed because she knows the God, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, the Elohim of Jacob. And now she comes back and she was just sharing with Stacey and I. She's like, now I need to know more about him. Now it like is burning within me. And she's like, I got to go back to Israel. But that's a, ful- that's a fulfillment of all the way back in Genesis chapter 28, where he says that all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, this word blessed, it, it means it's actually an agricultural term. It means to mix in amongst that all the nations, all the Gentiles of the earth, if they pledge their allegiance to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, they will be grafted in amongst the people of Israel through their faith. So it's beautiful to see that playing out. Even in just in Maria's life, for instance, verse 15, he says, look, I am with you. I will guard you wherever you go and I will shuv. I will cause you to shuv. Now, this this is the word we get where we get uh, repent from. Now, repent. I don't know what that means, but in Hebrew, teshuv means to turn around and come back the other way. This is a literal picture of repentance. It is it is remembering the, the your creator remembering his words and his promises and his faithfulness and then wanting to go back and having that eclipse of obedience to his word and being in his land. That's repentance. He says, I will cause you to repent or come back into this land because I won't leave you until I've done what I have promised you. So Yaakov awoke from his sleep. Now, when you're awaking from sleep, uh, like allegorically speaking, it's like a resurrection from the dead. He awoke from his sleep and he said, truly Adonai is in this place, Yudhe is in this place, and I didn't know it. And then he became afraid and he said, this makom is fearsome, it's like awesome. This must be the Beit Elohim, the house of God. This is the very gate to the Sha'ar of heaven. So Yaakov got up there early in the morning. He took the stone. This is the very stone they said that was like used for the cornerstone of the temple. And he put it, the one that he had under his head, and he set it up as a standing stone, and he poured olive oil on its top. And he named that place Beit El, which means the house, Beit, of El, or Elohim. Beit El. But the town had originally been called Luz. Now go with me real quick. Actually, let's, keep, let's finish the chapter. I'm going to take you to two more verses. It says, Jacob took this vow. If God will be with me and guard me on this road that I am traveling, giving me bread to eat and clothes to wear so that I return to my father's house in peace. Now think Think prophetically here as well. Then Adonai will be my God. And this stone, which I have set up as a standing stone, will be God's house. And of everything you give me, I will return. Notice he's not saying like I will give you from I will return that, which is saying that he it came from him originally. One tenth to you. It's an eser. It's a tithe. And we see this. Uh, this principle throughout the Bible that this one-tenth of your livelihood is the starting point of generosity and giving back to God in a sense. I want to take you over to Deuteronomy 29.5 because he just said, if God will be my God and guard me on this road, 
Give me bread to eat and clothes to wear. I will return to my father, father's house in peace, and then you will be my God. Go to with me to Deuteronomy 29.5. Let's go to verse, actually, let's go to verse 1. Moshe summoned all of Israel and said to them, You saw in everything that Adonai did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his servants, to all his land. We're talking to, he's talking to the descendants of Jacob now. The great testings which you saw with your own eyes and the signs and those great wonders. Nevertheless, to this day, Adonai has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or, or to hear. I led you 40 years in the desert. Your clothes on your body, nor the shoes on your feet wore out. You didn't eat bread and you didn't drink wine or other intoxicating litter. This was so that you would know that I am Adonai, your God. What did God give the Israelites to eat? Manna. Yeah, he gave them that, that heavenly bread, didn't he? So he's reminding them and invoking them of the promise that their forefather made. He's saying, hey, your forefather, Jacob, made a promise to me that if he or his descendants were clothed and had shoes and were provided for by the way, by way of food, that I will be their God. And he's invoking that promise again, that vow that Jacob made. And we see this playing out Again, talking about the Gentiles coming to faith. Go with me to Isaiah 49, 6 and the regathering of the people of Israel. Isaiah 49, 6. And this is a prophetic passage talking about the last days. It says, it is not enough, God speaking here, that you are merely my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the offspring of Israel. I will make you a light to the nations, the Gentiles. So my, what is it? Yeshua can spread to the ends of the earth. Here is what Adonai, the Redeemer of Israel, his Holy One, says to this one's despise, whom the nations detest, to the servant of the tyrants. We, when kings see you, they will stand up. Princes too will prostrate themselves because of Adonai who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So it's too small of a matter for God to restore the tribes of Jacob. God is saying, your people, Jacob, will be scattered to the ends of the earth. East, west, north, south. Your fortune right now is lost and they will be lost again. Time and time again. But guess what? My promises are true. And time and time again, I will regather the lost tribes of Jacob and restore the fortunes of Yaakov. And you've got to remember when you, when you experience that, that I am your El Shaddai. I am your provider, right? And we're in the midst of that now. And I think it was in 2007 that for the first time in 2,000 years, there are more Jewish people living in the land of Israel. There's a higher concentration of Jewish people living in the land of Israel than anywhere else in the world. And this has been the first time for 2,000 years. That is extremely prophetic and a fulfillment of this once again, where he will restore the tribes of Jacob. So I want to encourage you today and remind you that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is faithful. And you may be experiencing kind of a sleeping on a, uh, having a stone for a pillow kind of day or kind of week, or you know someone who is, but I want to encourage you if you're in that or you will go through that, that it's at those times that God interrupts that sleep, that very uncomfortable sleep, mm. and he says to you, I'm here with you. 
I'm going to reveal to you not only my character and my name as your provider, but my plan for restoration and redemption of this situation. And the story doesn't get much better here in the next couple of chapters. <laughs> but it gets much better as we go through the, continue through the Bible. And then it gets worse. And then it gets much better. And then it gets much worse. But at the end of the, end of the book, don't we see all of it being restored? And God once again dwelling with us as his creation. So let's pray, and then we're going to have a quick little Q&A. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your promises that are true even to this day. That you are restoring the tribes of Jacob and the fortunes of Israel. And Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room that is experiencing great discouragement, and they feel isolated, or they feel alone, or they feel on the run from something, that you will interrupt them, and that you will entrap them, and you will reveal to them your character and your love and your promises and your plan for restoration. I pray this in the matchless name of Yeshua. Amen. Guys, we've got a couple minutes for questions. Do you have any comments or questions you want to add? To... Yeah, Darlene. Is this your first time asking a question? Or... Oh, okay. Seems like it. Yudhe Vave, yep. Explain. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll repeat for everybody to hear, but... The Sulam, the ladder? Yeah. Yes. It's like a double helix, like the DNA. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He chose a double helix for some reason to be the representation of everything that is genetically us, right? Yeah. That's very interesting. So after this, Darlene's going to teach a class on DNA. And, no. But any other questions or comments, guys? Very good. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, Jason? A uh, comment and a question. Stakes. Could I get my water, Stakes? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, the, well, you mentioned the, the coronation ceremony. It's very interesting because one part was not televised was anointing. Mm. They did it with oil concentrated from the mouth of olives. that real fast before we go to your question. Uh, he's saying that it's interesting when you watch the coronation of uh, King Charles that the only part that's not televised is when he's being anointed with oil and then it's there's a, a thing they say like this is the hymn of Zadok the priest or something like that or yeah so they see it they see it absolutely as like I don't believe that but it's interesting they see it as a religious ceremony as the, the continuation of the, the king of Israel but what was your question? Um, I wondered this because I don't I haven't had a clear like the whole, you know, with, with as many comments uh, about the dispersion, about how Israel will come back, why is the two house thing so controversial? Mm -hmm. Is that just a prophetic thing? Or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. 
he's asking, with all the prophecy about the house, the house of Israel and the tribes of Jacob coming back um, in the Bible, why is the two house thing controversial? Yeah. Because um, we understand that it's by faith. Yeah. Yeah. It's controversial because um, there are people that take it and exploit it, and they um, they will make it. Um, especially, there's a movement called uh, Ephraimite movement, which says that if you come to this faith or you start keeping the Torah commandments or something, that you must DNA uh, d- uh, racially, you must be descendant of one of the lost ten tribes of Israel or something. Um, and it, that's how it gets controversial because it gets into DNA. And those who don't come into this awakening or whatever, they're not. And I, I think that's completely bogus. Um, and that's, that's what I think Paul was addressing when he says um, controversies and endless genealogies. Um, that, yeah, it is completely by faith we are engrafted into the house of Israel. Um, but no, absolutely, there's two houses of Israel that would be reunited. And I think we're actually seeing that. And we actually saw the beginnings of that in Acts chapter 2. Because some of the tribes where they mention that they're from... Uh, or actually of the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, that they were already beginning to come back, at least in Acts chapter 2, and make pilgrimages to the temple. Um, but yeah, it's, that, it's, it's, that's why it's controversial. It's not controversial to me, but if someone says, I came into this walk, therefore I'm a descendant of the tribe of Naphtali, and there's often people, teachers, that would say you have to fast and you, you have to pray for God to reveal which tribe you're a part of. Um, I, think that that's, I think that that's distracting, and I think that's unbiblical. Um, that's why it's controversial to answer this question. No, divisive. Yeah, yeah. Anything that's anything that is fixated on racial lines is not of God. Now, God, God does create you know different shades of people and different. He has created the Jewish people uh, and and physical descendants of Abraham, uh, but even then, he's not fixated on it. He provides salvation for the entire world, even outside the family, and through that, they are mixed into the family. Um, the, the racial lines are very blurry even in his own eyes so um, yeah anyone who's fixated on that and trying to establish that um, be very careful and mindful of it so yes well, let's, let's make yours the last one yeah Yeah. Some may even speculate that Moses' wife from the continent of Africa would have had really dark skin. Yeah. So proof that, that race is, it's, it's always been a matter of the heart to the God of the Bible.